Let's Talk PR and More. Public relations, media, publicity, integrated communications, marketing, digital, reputation management, and more. Let's Talk PR and More with award-winning PR strategist, Sherry Goldman. I'm Sherry Goldman, president of Goldman Communications Group, and welcome to Let's Talk PR and More. My guest today is Nick Ashew. Nick is Senior Director of Corporate and Executive Communications at APCO Worldwide and a member of APCO's International Advisory Council. Prior to joining the agency side of our industry, Nick held senior corporate communications positions at five Fortune 500 companies across sectors including energy and utilities, financial services, insurance, metals and mining, and entertainment. His positions included positions at Alcoa, where he was Vice President of Corporate Affairs and responsible for all communications functions and also oversaw the Alcoa Foundation, and positions at AIG, American Electric Power, Niagara Mohawk Power Corporation, and Paramount Communications. Nick has been inducted into the Arthur Page Society and is a former trustee of the Society. And that's just some of his amazing credentials. So I'm so happy Nick is here today. Welcome, Nick. Good to have you. Thanks, Sherry. Very happy to be with you. Great. So let's get started. For me, your background and experience in corporate communications issues, crisis communication is so interesting. So if you can start us off, get a little bit of a background and tell us a little bit about how you got started in corporate communications or why this was your your calling, so to speak. I wish I could say that I had it all planned out, but um, it really more (laughs) has happened to me than than I had it planned. I thought I was going to be a sports writer. I, I, I love sports and writing and uh, found out what being a sports writer pays. And uh, really, when I graduated, I, I I had two opportunities, one for a small upstate New York daily, which was known as a good place to start in journalism. Right. And uh, the other was for a little hospital near Boston, which um, I could do everything there. It was closer to home. It paid more. I took that. And then a year and a half later, I got called by my local utility. Um, you know, they were looking for help because they were the lead owner of a very controversial nuclear power plant that was being built, the Seabrook nuclear plant. So 12 and a half years on the front lines of that, uh, we got taken over. You know, we went Chapter 11. It was, it was a really big deal. And this was back in the 80s. Um, but I learned a ton and found I really liked corporate communications. Next thing, uh, really kind of a fluky thing, but I, I landed as head of global communications for what was then Paramount Communications before it was acquired by Viacom. Wow. So that was marquee assets like Paramount Pictures and Simon & Schuster, Madison Square Garden, you know. Nice. It was pretty remarkable. <laughs> but, but it was a crazy business. I wasn't meant for it. Um, <laughs> I went back to the utility business with Niagara Mohawk, and, and Paramount got acquired shortly after that. But uh, Niagara Mohawk was a big utility upstate New York. They had a big, uh, facing big financial pressures. Um, I went there and was able to accomplish some things that helped them get through that successfully. And um, from there was... Um, you know, was uh, a recruited to uh, uh, American Electric Power, a very, very big utility in the Midwest, uh, served uh, 11 states. And we had some uh, great experiences there, uh, but was looking to come back east as my kids were going off to college. And the recruiter called me and um, said, hey, you've got to look at this. It's uh, company's number nine in the Fortune 500 list. And now keep in mind, this was September of 2006. And it was AIG. And uh, well, when was, things were still uh, good, right before the credit crisis. <laughs> yeah, we were just you know a remarkable company, but of course the financial crisis hit, and um, 
all of a sudden, you know, it was a crisis mode, and, and we, we can talk all day about that. But, but we will. <laughs> I learned a lot. You know, I thought it was pretty smart when I got there, but I learned a lot and uh, learned how much I didn't know. And um, then got from there recruited to Alcoa. Um, you know, I loved AIG, but the government owned us. The future was uncertain. Alcoa was looking for, for the experience I had going through that. So I went to Alcoa for uh, a few years and then um, had the opportunity to, to go to APCO, which is a global communications consultancy and a uh, good, good thing to do at that point in my career. And it's worked out great. I've been there 10 years now. So very broad ranging, lots of different experiences. Happy to expand on any of that if you want. Absolutely. It's so fascinating to me. Let's talk a little bit about what some of the experiences at AIG and then Alcoa. I mean, you held a great yeah. position at AIG when things were going great. And then <laughs> we had the, the world fell apart in 2008 yeah. with the financial crisis. Yeah, so. the world fell apart. Uh, it was the greatest job in the world for six months, but then uh, <laughs> I started hearing about these things called credit default swaps, and um, of course, it, you know, financially, the, the world blew up, and AIG was at the center of it. It was. Um, were, can I ask, were you aware? I mean, you know, when you're internal, do you did you know things were going to happen, or did one day you kind of oh, wake no. up and go, oh my gosh, now I literally went from doing this job to being beyond crisis communications and triage and all of that. Yeah. No, nobody expected what happened to happen. It was so cataclysmic. Um, and AIG was such a strong company, you know. Absolutely. Um, so it was really – and it turned out it, it wasn't that – I mean, it, actually, in the end, um, U.S. taxpayers made $23 billion on their support for AIG. It was a liquidity problem. I mean, AIG was a very healthy company, but when the crisis hit, nobody could raise any money. And even a company like AIG needs external financing. So um, so the government backed up AIG and we, we made it through. But no, nobody saw that coming. And, um, you know, in those situations, um, you learn a lot about yourself and, and people you work with. You know, in a real crisis, um, you know, people's personalities and behaviors change, you know, some for the better, some not. And, um, and so managing, especially a lot of the internal challenges, were um, as challenging as, as dealing with the crisis. Um, you know, people's lives go on, and, and like my staff, and you wanted to make sure that they're able to take care of things that are important in their lives. In the meantime, you know, you're dealing with literally a global financial crisis that almost became a cataclysm, and, oh, yeah. and, um, and it was quite challenging. How much in control of the message or the communications were you, or were you just so reactive at that point? Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a great question because at one point it was total chaos. I mean, anything we said or did was would be grabbed as you know, and, and somebody would try to sensationalize it. That happened a lot, so it really forced me to focus focus on messaging and and the two messages that we really boiled down to and emphasized over and over were that. Um, our policyholders were going to be taken care of. We we were going to make sure that their policies were good, and, and AIG kept that promise, and that we were going to pay back the government. And AIG kept that prom- promise, and uh, today is, a, 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 you know, a, still a great company. So it was really um, to focus on that, those two message points. And then the other, other area that required discipline was um, making sure that what you did, everything you did, was in support of your strategy and, and not to get confused between tactics and strategy. So in other words, it might be something that comes along that 
might be um, easy to do, interesting to do, might feel good, but does it really support your strategy? There just wasn't time to waste or resources to waste on things that weren't supporting the strategy. So those were the areas where, you know, after, you know, getting up off the mat and, and, you know, realizing what had happened to us, we really tried to focus on. And I'll say, you know, I also had to battle a bit of my human nature because, you know, I tend to be an optimist and I tend to think that things will always get better. And in the AIG situation, I felt like, okay, this is bad, but it's got to turn around. This is bad, but we're a big, strong company. And, you know, it, I, I, if I look back and one mistake I made, um, I didn't act quick enough to get support and to help us um, just because I thought we're going to get through it, we're going to get through it. So that was a lesson learned. Well, because you probably never experienced, and rightfully so, never experienced anything on that scope before. I don't think many people did. So Not on that scale, you know, I talked about Seabrook, which was quite a crisis for 10, years. Yeah, let's years, talk about Seabrook. You handled communications during yeah. the nuclear power plant construction yeah, and licensing. Yeah. and That's right. Who wants a nuclear yeah. power plant in their backyard? Nobody, I'm sure. Yeah, right. Well, you know, it was... Um, you know, you go go back to that time. So <clears throat> I started in 78, and this was the oil embargo years. And, and it was really important that, you know, New England had no no resources. I mean, we have no coal, no oil, no natural gas. So building nuclear was really quite important to, to sustaining the economy. Um, but it became a very controversial plant. And um, it, it um, you know, through the, the – it, it, what happened was it – it got chosen by the anti-nuclear movement as kind of, as kind of the, you know, the target of the movement, and um, we had huge protests. I mean, thousands of people, and they became increasingly violent, and um, so we're, that that created a lot of economic uncertainty. That was combined with then the Nuclear Regulatory Commission pulled Seabrook's construction permit twice during prime construction. That set us back. And then we ran into hyperinflation of the uh, 70s and 80s. And people may not remember, but interest rates, interest rates today are what five, I don't know, five, six percent. Um, they were 19 and 20, 21 percent. Yep. <laughs> so that, that's what happened. We we couldn't sustain that. So uh, I, I'm a great advocate now for people getting into communications to get, get a good business orientation, no matter what you do which I kind of had to do on the fly. I didn't really study business uh, enough when I was in college. And um, it's really important to have that business orientation no matter what you do. I had to play catch-up a lot. But um, it was uh, it was very challenging. I learned, you know, a lot about myself and what I could do, um, but also learned about, you know, the shortcomings I had and that I needed to address. I think we're all learning, but I just look at those two situations, AIG and Seabrook, and go, you were really in crisis mode, and crisis communications is so critical. Is one of the challenges trying to convince the C-suite that they need to listen to you and take your recommendations? Because I imagine their business heads are somewhere else. Well, um, in these crises were so severe that that wasn't a problem. Okay. In fact, it was it was more like, what are you doing? You, you got to do more. You know, it's more that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and um, so that so, but there, but you do run into that situation. 
And look, I mean, ideally, you want to prepare for potential crises and, and try to avoid them, right? So, uh, yeah, but what, I don't. Most yeah. companies don't want to spend the money yeah. and the resources, yeah. and you know. And I keep saying it's that's the best what, insurance policy you'll never need, but you've got to do right. it. But they don't want to do it. That's right. That's where you run into the problem. So, in my problem, in AIG, the C. And by the way, during the crisis in a fourteen-month period. Um, I had four CEOs. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, they, oh, yeah, yeah. And they all bring their own, you know, bankers and lawyers and advisors. Some want to bring their own PR people. Um, so, you know, there's a running joke that, you know, if my boss calls, get his name. You know, things were <laughs> changing so quickly, you know. But um, but, it, but but that was um, – the situation there was what more can we do? What else can we do? Um, and it was quite challenging. But, but uh, it wasn't a fight. I mean, it wasn't a fight to convince him that we needed to do something. It's, are we doing it fast enough? Should we do more? Well, that's good to hear because, you know, some of my experience has been, you know, C-suite doesn't want to talk. We'll just yeah. keep quiet. Yeah. And I'm like, that doesn't really work. Yeah, and Especially more so today than maybe, you know, even years ago. I mean, oh, yeah. something, you know, with yeah. social media, with 24 hours news cycle. It, there's no keeping a secret anymore. Yeah, Controlling no the message is key, so you should control it before someone controls it for you. But well, there's that, no that's secrets. exactly right. And on your terms and on your timing, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had, you know, we had one of the things that happened at AIG was there was a, uh, or some in Congress, I, I think, unfairly exploited the situation and tried to portray things AIG was doing as squandering taxpayer dollars, like holding sales meetings. Well, in the insurance business, you have to hold sales meetings to get, you know, brokers and, and, and agents to sell your product. Um, so, they, you know, they were trying to sensationalize that. And as a result, it became so controversial, we had to stop holding sales meetings. You can't do that for very long if you can want to sell it. Right. So we strategized about how to get back out to do that. And what we did, you know, and it just took some convincing, but, you know, we convinced um, uh, management that, you know, we were, we were going to hold a meeting and convince management that we were going to go to a, a reporter who had been covering us responsibly and understood what was going on, um, because that was another problem. Uh, it became a populist story, so many in the media who didn't normally cover us were covering us, and, you know, it's very hard to, to deal with that. But we convinced them we're going to go to a reasonable, responsible reporter, give them the story, give them, uh, you know, they'd have an exclusive but they had to hear us out. And we did that. And they ran the story and it, it went well and we held the meeting and it wasn't a controversy anymore. So I think that was a positive that, that came out of that in terms of how to get back out there on, on when a severe controversy hits. Sounds like that was a great strategy. I'm real, really smart. Yeah, we were desperate. <laughs> I'll tell you honestly. But, but it uh, says but no, something you know, about, you know, working even with the media that knows your industry and those relationships yeah. versus everyone just piling on looking for, you know, now we'll call it clickbait, but yeah. looking then for the well, sensational headline or maybe to get their, their next job based yeah. upon what they salaciously report. That's right. When I smartened up, I ended up focusing on a couple of uh, really good writers and I'll say it was Jonah Sarah at the New York Times and Andrew Ross Sorkin, that, that who really were smart and understood what was going on and weren't looking to sensationalize. They were looking to get the right story, you know? Right. So um, so I worked really focused more on them. I'm not saying I cut anybody out, but I'm saying I gave them a lot of time 
and they they covered responsibly, and it really helped bring some reason to the whole crisis. It's great. If you look back, would you do anything differently? Yeah, I would have got help sooner. Okay. You know, I, I would have. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you can't, when I was on the corporate side, you're always going back and forth with, um, yeah, should I have an agency of record? You know, it's <laughs> a lot of money to keep people hanging around. Well, you know, AIG had a lot of agencies doing work for us, but we really didn't have a global agency who really knew us and could come in and, and, and step up right away. Interesting. So, I would have expected yes. that you did, you know, it's being on the agency yeah. side. I just assume all the large corporations have lots of agencies on retainer. Not, yeah. Never me, but lots of agencies. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of owes to AIG's uh, nature. You know, it's a huge, sprawling a company that was built to, to, you know, to be very independent and very competitive. Even some of their businesses would compete with each other. Wow. But uh, very, very successful. Um, so there was probably that nature, but we, and it, whatever the reason, we didn't really have one. So, so naturally, when, when we needed one, we had to bring somebody in and then get them up to speed, which takes time and, and, um, and resources. And, and I lost time doing it. So that's one thing I, I would do over. Um, I would, uh, I'd be faster. I'd gear up faster and then, and then dial back if I needed to rather than the other way around. Right. That makes sense. And I'm sure that expertise, now that you're at APCO, you're on the other side, yeah. right? You're the agency yeah. people want to bring in. How hard is it to get clients to kind of think about that in just in case you need it? Yeah. Some do. I mean, some do think about it. Others are like, hurry up, I need you yesterday, you know, and, and that's always more difficult you know, because you got to get in and pull together a team and get, get oriented to what's going on. So we always... Um, you know, no, I'm a great advocate for for having um, having a, an agency uh, who knows you, who can work with you, and um, and respond on a moment's notice. I'm I'm a big proponent of agencies too, as you know. Um, tell me a little bit about what you did at Alcoa, and I know you did both comms and you worked on the Alcoa Foundation. Yeah, so Alcoa, um, of course, a great American company, a long history, but got hit hard in, in the financial crisis and. And um, it was difficult digging out. You know, metal prices were were up and down. And um, and, and Alcoa, um, right after I left, actually split into three companies. Um, oh wow! You know, partly, partly, yeah, partly in recognition of the fact that um, you know there's a commodity piece to the company that really moves with commodity prices. And then there's there are, um, you know downstream uh, businesses that are very advanced, advanced manufacturing. So it made sense to split them up, but. Um, you know, we were we were um, you know, doing a number of things uh, to to expand globally. Um, built a you know had a great uh, started a great joint venture in Saudi Arabia, building the, the kingdom's first uh, aluminum complex. Um, that had challenges of its own. Um, Alcoa and the aluminum industry is a leader in, in recycling, and um, and that's a happy story uh, with lightweighting of vehicles um, to make them more efficient. Uh, electric vehicles, um, you know, recycling uh, beverage containers, cans, you know, it's most recyclable um, uh, container in the world. So so we're working on a number of different fronts, overall trying to bring Alcoa back to, you know, kind of the pre-crisis days. Um, and, and so it was very challenging and very exciting. And we, we had a very dynamic CEO, uh, Klaus Kleinfeld, who was uh, uh, at the forefront of all this. Um, and in the meantime, Alcoa Foundation, which was um, maybe the top three corporate foundations in the country. Wow. Um, yeah, doing a lot of good stuff. Um, 
you know, aligned with business priorities like recycling, for instance. Um, and so it was really um, it was a real, real cool opportunity to work for a company like that because you had all these different things going on. That they were all related, you know, global expansion, you know, the recycling part, lightweighting. Um, uh, Alcoa is a very um, advanced uh, company environmentally, um, which, you know, it's important. They're a huge energy consumer, but, you know, they got a, had a great um, – they got some great smelters, like one in Iceland that just uses hydropower. Um, so, so a lot of cool things going on. But, um, but it was destined to, to really um, break up into different companies because their businesses were going in, in um, different, not bad, but different directions. Absolutely, that makes sense. So now you're on the agency side and you work for. Mm-hmm. What is it that C-suite leaders don't understand about the importance of communications or executive communications or? Well, Planning I think crisis. I'll say first that there's a there's greater understanding today than there was when I started out. Um, that's the, the good whole, news, right? Thankfully, yeah, that's the good news. <laughs> yeah, the industry's changed so much. I mean, literally, when I started as a public information rep, you know, communicate corporate communications was pretty much just transactional. You know, we we want to announce this, do a release. We did something wrong, you know, try to make it look good. I mean, and it wasn't. It wasn't part of the strategic business process. Right. And now, by and large, it is. And I think that's widely recognized, which is a good thing. Um, but it's not everywhere. It's not recognized everywhere that way. Um, you still, remarkably, you know, I'll find, you know, you know, clients who are potential clients who just want us to get their name in the, in the media, you know. And it's, you know, um, that's something that can happen, but there are other things you need to do. And a lot of them just don't have the patience. They just want to just get the name out there, and that's fine. We're probably not the best ones to help you with that, but, you know, we, we like to work with with um, clients, um, be partners with them in their business, and uh, and communications, of course, is, is important for that, but there's so much more that you have to do to be successful and to make sure that your message is aligned and that your your um, your your employees are, are supportive, and, you know, we've got a great a gig in McDonald's unit does a great job at that. Transitional communications, culture communications. There's so many things you have to get right. So we focus on all of that. And um, that's changed. That's changed a lot. I mean, there a lot of companies now are much more sensitive um, to the need to have, to have an internal alignment, a healthy culture. Um, and look, you see it like you. I'm sure you see it uh, today as well. Um, there's so many corporate actions that are in response to employee, you know, concerns or or activities, right? Right. Much more social awareness. So there's a lot of that going on. If only they could have done it first instead of having to be reactive, but at least they're listening. Yeah. And even deciding which things are important to you or which things align with your values. I mean, um, that's all really important. And it's it's much more, um, there's much greater awareness about that today in the C-suite. And do they appreciate everything? You know, are they planning for crises? Are they planning for this? Or yeah, m- m- not all, uh, <laughs> but many. Not many. It's like you know, like we discussed earlier. Look, it's a budgetary thing, and you know, if it's not hitting you and staring you in the face, other problems are, and they ha- and they can't ignore that. But it's so important, and some really do get it. You know, we've got clients who are really good about it. They, they just will do scenarios, will drill, will really. Um, you know, go and you can't prepare for everything, but the more you prepare, the better prepared you're going to be. 
no matter what happens. And so the less the less severe the crisis can be because you have prepared. I mean, sometimes they go, "Well, yeah. it didn't happen. We didn't get it. Get bad press. That's because we did all the work. It didn't." Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you know, a lot of it is coming from boards now. A lot of boards are saying to management, "Hey, are you ready if something happens?" Because it's not a question of whether something bad is going to happen at some point. It's going to. Yes. But the question is, how well prepared were you? And how did you respond when it happened? And, and boards are more than ever getting this because they, they see the liability involved. Um, and, and so a lot of it's coming at the, from the board level. That's good to hear. It's good to yeah. hear. For someone, because we're on this radio station, if, if someone's starting out in the business or thinking of corporate comm and executive, what advice or suggestions would they give them? I know you said you wish you had studied business. What, what would yeah. you suggest? And what, what would help them to kind of think this is, I've got the skills, yeah. this is the right place to go? Yeah, right. Uh, well, I'll say it again, business, because um, no matter what you do, uh, understanding of business is going to help you. It's going to help you in two ways. It's going to help you understand what's going on, because we're in a capitalist society, and even if you're with a not-for-profit, you're going to understand business. Right. And it's going to help you build relationships with the business people in your organization, right, because you can you understand what they're talking about. You can speak their language. Um, it's a lot easier. Um, and then it's the second thing is a word I just mentioned, relationships. Um, especially early in your career, um, establishing and maintaining uh, really good two-way relationships is so important for you professionally and personally. And and that's something I, I'm, I'm fortunate that I did. Um, looking back, the, you know, I did it in the analog days where it was just phone calls and, and, and letters. Uh, but now with social media, it's so much easier. But it's so important to have those good relationships. And remember, they're not one way. It's not just what can you get out of it. Because I had... Um, there's so many circumstances when, you know, I knew somebody way back when and they went on to an important position and, and we were able to help each other. And uh, there are countless numbers of experiences uh, along those lines. So so those, those are two things right off the top, the business. Another is language, you know. Um, that's even if you're, you know, you take a night course or something, you know, you don't have to be fluent. You really don't. But it's it's good to be conversant. And it, it gives you new sectors you can look at. And if you go someplace, even if you're not a native speaker, the fact that you're you're making an effort to speak the native language is, is very helpful and it it gets you gains you, you know, trust and helps you build relationships. So those are things I say you can always do. They'll never go to waste. Relationships, business orientation, maybe a language. Um, always things that, that, that have payback. That's great advice and a good place to kind of end this because I'm out of time. Um, Nick, thank okay. you so much for being here and talking with me. I so appreciate it. Learned a lot. Oh, my pleasure, Shelley. Really, really nice talking with you. Thank you. That's Let's Talk PR and more for today. You can find more information about the show and about me at Goldman Communications Group's website, www.goldmanpr.net. And if you want to hear the show again, you can listen to the podcast, which is posted on Goldman Communications Group's website, as well as on your favorite podcast sites, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and iHeartRadio. Thank you again for listening. I look forward to talking PR and more with you all again next week.